You know, never, never does a week go by that I don't hear about the relevance of this sermon series, Full Disclosure. The preacher of Hebrews speaks to us where we live. Remember the question? If God loves me so much, why is my life so hard? And so it could have been the woman I spoke with yesterday morning who has lost a number of loved ones. You know, it is interesting sometimes when the people you want to die don't. And the people you don't want to die do. And then, you know, there are those who uh, talk about their business issues or aches and pains. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe it's the loss of um, some kind of reputation. Whatever it is, it's relevant to what the preacher says here. If God loves me so much, why is my life so hard? The answer is so that we might fix our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith. And so here we are near the end of this uh, great sermon, uh, the 13th chapter. We'll dip into the 12th chapter a bit and then go into 13. And he's going into what is called the imperative, how should we then live? He spent 12 chapters talking about what Jesus has done for us, and then one chapter, therefore, how should we live? That's very instructive because it is all about fixing our eyes on Jesus and what he's done for us that enables us to live by his grace. So this message is entitled, Our Grace. It's referring to Jesus. It relates back to lesson number three, which is our builder. It relates to next week, our city. It relates last week, our shaker. It all relates, and hopefully you'll pick that up as we get into it. Let's begin reading at the end of chapter 12, verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food, which have not benefited those devoted to them. September of 1939. Great Britain was at war. It was a war not of their own choosing. Germany had been aggressive, and Great Britain and France together declared war on Germany. Winston Churchill took to the radio in famous radio addresses. This is one of his first. Now remember, their backs are against the wall. It's impossible odds. His main purpose is to encourage his people to have a stiff upper lip, keep calm and carry on. And in that speech, he coined a phrase that has been used ever since to describe the indescribable. Speaking of Russia, 
He said, I cannot forecast to you what they will do. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. It's a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. You know, that goes not only for nations, it goes for people too. In 1897, A.W. Tozer was born in Newberry, Pennsylvania. Do you know where that is? If you do, you're amazing. There are today only 92 people in that town. And when he was born, there were less. It's in southern Clearfield County. He was born into a family with six children. He was the third. They lived on a farm, poor. Like many children of that era, he could only finish eight grades, and then he had to work the farm to help his family survive. But when he was 19, he was able to move to Akron, Ohio, and he began working for a tire company. And there at that tire company, he heard a man say, if you don't know that you're saved, just call on the Lord and say to him, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. After work, he went home, climbed the stairs to the attic, and he prayed that prayer. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Five years later, with no formal theological or biblical training, he became the pastor of a church in West Virginia. For the next 42 years, he pastored two other churches, one in Chicago and one in Canada and Toronto. During all of the years of his life and ministry, he preached all over this nation. He preached all over Canada. He wrote 40 books. He received three honorary doctorates. Everywhere he went, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to build up the body of Christ. And yet here is the riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. He never spent any time with people. Five hours a day, he would spend alone with the Lord. But never with people. At 21, he married a woman named Ada. They had six kids, five boys and one girl. For 40 years, he reached out to strangers with the gospel, and yet he never reached out to his own kids. You know what his biographer said? He was drawn to the, ba- the kids as babies, but after that he couldn't relate. When he took those two churches, one in Chicago and one in Toronto for more than 30 years, a condition of his employment that he required was that he didn't have to do any pastoral work. He didn't want to visit people. He didn't want to engage in people's lives. And when he died, nobody was there. A month before he died, he said, I've lived a lonely life. Two years after his death, his wife was asked, do you miss him? She said, A.W. Tozer 
was God's man. My new husband is my man. Now, let me ask you something. How is it possible? How is it possible to fix your eyes on Jesus and miss the apple of Jesus' eye? How is that possible? The preacher tells us. And he talks about it in the context of grace. So let's dig in. First of all, notice in verses 28 and 29, chapter 12, the importance. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now, last week we mentioned that according to many scholars, and I think they're right, the end of chapter 12 is the rhetorical climax of this sermon. In it, the preacher reminds us that there are two cities. There's the city of this world, and there's the city of God, and we are permanent residents, citizens of the city of God. We're residents of this city, but we're citizens of the city that is to come. And we'll talk more about that next week. And the reason he can say that is because of the finished work of Jesus. You see, this, this preacher is no different than any other New Testament writer. The New Testament in all of the epistles are always divided into two sections. There is the indicative, in other words, what Christ has done, what is indicated by who he is and what he's done. And then that follow is followed by the imperative, how should we then live? And the order is never reversed. There's only one letter in the New Testament that doesn't seem to follow that form, and that's the book of James. And maybe that's why Martin Luther called it the straw epistle. You never begin with do's and don'ts. You always begin with what Jesus did. And therefore, as a result of what he's done, what he has accomplished, what he has finished, the Holy Spirit can apply his work, his power to your life, and you can begin to live out grace. After all that Jesus has done, after all of the indicative, this preacher moves to the imperative. How then should we live? And what the preacher would have us know is if you don't understand and you don't dig deeply into the indicative, you cannot possibly know how you should live. You become a legalist. But when we dig into what Jesus, who He is and what He's done, we can begin to understand how it is that we can begin to live a life of worship. Now, what's He mean when He says that we are to present to God, give to God acceptable worship? What is acceptable worship? There are those who say it means that you are prayerful. You pray before you worship. Prayer is a part of your worship. Maybe that's true, but that's not what he's talking about. There's others who say, well, it means to hear the Word of God and obey His commands. That's acceptable worship. That's not what he means. He says, some people say, it means worship that keeps yourself unstained by the world. And while that is true, that's not what he's talking about. And the reason we don't understand so often what he talks about is because of the divisions between chapters. 
The chapters and verses were added much later. Actually, it's thought that a man did that while were, he was riding over southern Alps on an elephant. Maybe. But if you read from 12.29 to 13.1, you understand what the preacher means when he says, offer to the Lord acceptable worship. What does he say in verse 1? Let brotherly love continue. In other words, acceptable worship is worship that is born out of love. Remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world. How did he do it? He went through the fire for his bride. He loved her so much that he was able to selflessly go through the fire of his own judgment for her. You know, that stands to reason. Because from the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, we see that love is a function of relationship. We talked about this last week. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were in relationship with one another, in a loving relationship, and as a result of their love for each other, creation occurs. He creates all of creation, but especially men and women, He creates to be in relationship with Him and with each other. I mean, think about the first recorded sin. What's the consequence of that? They go away and hide. They want nothing to do with God. They want nothing to do with each other. What the preacher is saying is every human being is built for relationship. Blaise Pascal once said, there is within every soul, every human soul, a God-shaped vacuum. What's that mean? Every one of us have two basic needs, to love and be loved and have a sense of worth. That's the vacuum. And only God can fill that, and only God can fill it through Himself and through His people in relationship. He's built you for relationship. So what is acceptable worship? What does it mean to worship Him acceptably? Well, He tells us in verses 1 to 9. It means to love one another. It means to entertain strangers. It means to visit prisoners. It means to share your table and not your bed. It means to practice a life that mirrors God's loving relationship with Himself. And what the preacher is saying is that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have entered a radically new relationship where we can have a loving relationship not only with God, but with one another. Have you ever thought about this? The last seven days or eight of Jesus' earthly ministry, he spent only with his disciples. He turned away from the world and spent it only with his disciples. The last or the first six weeks, almost six weeks, of his life after the resurrection, he spent only with his disciples. Why? Because he knows that acceptable worship is worship of a loving heart turned in the direction of him 
and his people. It means living together in community. It means living together as Jesus for one another. Second, notice the intensity. Verse 1 again, let brotherly love continue. Do you remember what I said a couple weeks ago that the one charge that was leveled against the church in the first century was that they were atheists? They had no temple. They offered no sacrifices. They had no God that could be seen of wood or stone. Who are you? You say you're worshiping, but where is your God? You're an atheist. You know the other charge that was leveled against Christians? You're swingers. <laughs> you're loose morally. It is scandalous. You're into free love. Listen to what Lucian says, who's a Greek social commentator. Their founder, speaking of Christians, their founder persuaded them that they should live like brothers and sisters. Therefore, they despised their own privacy. They viewed all their possessions as common property. In other words, they practiced intimacy. Now, the Greeks and Romans, you were only intimate with your family. Anyone outside of your family you held at arm's length. I mean, even today that happens. I know some of the most dysfunctional families, <laughs> and yet the bond of blood is huge. Their brothers or sisters might run all over them. Their parents may hate them. There might be jealousies, bad blood everywhere, but when push comes to shove, the obligation for family bond is, transcends all other bonds. I've heard people say, he may be a load, but he's my brother. He may be a real screw-up, but he's my brother. You know, there's a transparency in families. I mean, you can't pull the wool over your family's eyes. They know you. They changed your diapers. Listen to what Lucian says. These Christians gave up their right to privacy. They knew each other. They were committed to each other. This was a revolutionary concept. It was totally unnatural for strangers to become brothers. You know, you know the most important influence in a Christian's life in the first century? It's their brothers and sisters in Christ. It wasn't their natural family. It was their brothers and sisters in Christ. Think of Jesus. Leave your boats. Leave your tax tables. Leave your occupation. Come follow me. Come be a part of my family. Somebody has said, if you come to worship or Bible study or grove, as a spectator, as one who doesn't give up your privacy and doesn't deeply and intensively connect with other believers, you're not part of a Christian body, you're part of a club. If you are not being shaped by the Holy Spirit through the love and the power of other believers... The empowering presence of Jesus is not going to work through you. Because according to Him, you are shaped by your community, 
your brothers and sisters in Christ. Third, notice the inclusion. Look at verse 2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Think of what he's saying. Not only does the love and the grace of Jesus Christ enable us to treat our brothers and sisters as brothers and sisters, it enables us to take total strangers and have them become brothers and sisters too. Think of how hard it is to break into a group of intimates. I sometimes hear, you know, there are a lot of cliques in church. Yeah, there are. Some people have been together as a group for so long, it's like they don't look at anyone else. But what's the preacher say? If the Holy Spirit, if the grace of Jesus is flowing through you, it's not going to be like that. People you don't know won't be people you don't know for very long. You will disclose, and they will disclose, not because you have to, because you want to. What the preacher is saying is, love the outsider as much as you love the insider. Now, you and all know the Greek word for, for brotherly love, Philadelphia. Do you know the word for hospitality to strangers? Philonexia. The love of the outsider. The, it's that closely related. Think of it. In the first century, everything was based on patronage. In other words, you do for me, I'll do for you. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. It's like the masters. You can get in the lottery, you can pay your money, and if you're selected, you can have the privilege of walking the grounds. You give us cash, we'll let you walk the grounds. If you get selected... I mean, the Bible is full of patronage. I mean, think of Genesis 18. Remember that? Abraham and Sarah are in their tent. Three strangers come up. Abraham gets out of the tent. Ooh, fix some dinner. Invites them to meal and they sit and eat. Why does he do that? Because he wants to be blessed by them. But look what the preacher is doing. He is taking patronage and setting it on its ear. What he's saying is love and give and bless those who can't love and bless you. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. In other words, give with no expectation. Now, isn't that exactly what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, what profit do you have from loving those who love you? Don't even the pagans do that? If all you're doing is hanging out with your friends, what good's that? That's what Jesus says. And then the preacher illustrates what he means. Verse 3. Remember those in prison. As if you were in prison with them. Remember those who are mistreated. Because you've been mistreated by the Romans. Verse 4, share your table, but don't share your bed. In that day, as in our day, self-ruled. It was all about what's in it for me. 
And so two places where you could really dominate someone is at the table and in your bed. You could get what you want. And what's the preacher saying? Don't you dare do that. When the grace of Jesus Christ begins to control your heart, you will begin to see your table, your money, your bed, not as things to be used to the exclusion of others for your own self-interest, but for the inclusion of others. So your table, feed those that don't know you. Feed those that don't love you. Feed those. Welcome those who are strangers. Love them like brothers. Your money, it's not yours. I've given it to you. Don't put your eyes on yourself. Give it to others, for that's why I've given it to you. Your bed. Don't use that for what you can get. Use it for the building up of the community. And then fourth, notice the implementation. Look at verse 5. And if you're in the habit of marking your Bible, you may want to put this in. You may want to highlight the heck out of this verse. Listen to it. Keep your life free from the love of money. That's not why you should mark it. Be content with what you have. That's not why you should mark it. For he has said, here it is, drum roll, I will never leave you or forsake you. That why, that's why you should mark it. You say, well, why? Why should I mark that? Because isn't that exactly what Moses said to Joshua and the people of Israel in, in Deuteronomy 31, right before he died? He said, the Lord will be with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Isn't that exactly what he said? Not at all. You know what the Greek says here? Let me give you the literal wooden translation of this verse in Greek. Set your way of life without money loving. Be satisfied with present things. For he has said to you, get this, he has said to you, I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. Five times. There is nowhere else in the New Testament where there are five particles that are negative in a list. That's what the preacher is saying to these people. What's their question? If God loves me, why is my life so hard? Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't you know He will never, 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 never leave you five times? Number of grace. He'll never leave you. Do you know one of the greatest fears we have, one of these fears that underlies all of our other fears, is the fear of being alone? You think about that. So much of what we do is because we have a fear of being alone. In the last hundred years, I don't know of anybody who is more faithful to the gospel than A.W. Tozer. He's got some classic works about loving the Lord, about focusing your eyes on Him. But how did he describe his life? I've lived a lonely life. 
How did he die? He died alone. What does his wife say? That first husband was God's man. My second one, that's my man. I really didn't know him. Neither did the kids. Of all the concerns that Jesus might have on the cross, what is the central concern? What's the third word from the cross? That's how it's central, you know, seven words, third, real close to being the middle. Mother, behold your son. John, behold your mother. Of all the things that Jesus be concerned about, why that? Well, the same reason that right after the resurrection and for those six weeks, he spent only with those disciples, getting them together as a family. Don't you see it? Jesus lived and he died. He died alone so that you and I don't have to live or die alone. In chapter 3, the builder, the preacher says, consider Jesus. He doesn't mean look at him. He doesn't mean a passing glance. He says, dig down deep, focus your eyes on him. Focus your eyes on him. For he is the Lord of grace. And when you focus your eyes on Jesus, you know what you see? You see someone who says, I'll never stop loving you. I'll never stop showing you hospitality. I'll never, I'll never abandon you as a prisoner. I will always come to you in the prison of your pain and your loneliness. I will always treat you as my bride. I will never withhold my riches from you. And I will never, 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 never leave you or forsake you. You know what the preacher's saying? The degree to which you know that The degree to which that gets from your heart, your head to your heart, that will be the degree to which you're able to live free. Just like Him, in total grace. He is our grace. Think about that. Amen.